Book Fifteen, Part Two of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broadrib. Book Fifteen, A.D. sixty-two through sixty-five, Part Two. Poppaea bears Nero a daughter. During the consulship of Memmius Regulus and Virginius Rufus, Nero welcomed with something more than mortal joy the birth of a daughter by Poppaea, whom he called Augusta, the same title having also been given to Poppaea. The place of her confinement was the colony of Antium, where the emperor himself was born. Already had the senate commended Poppaea's safety to the gods, and had made vows in the state's name, which were repeated again and again and duly discharged. To these was added a public thanksgiving, and a temple was decreed to the goddess of fecundity, as well as games and contests after the type of the ceremonies commemorative of Actium, and golden images of the two fortunes were to be set up on the throne of Jupiter of the capital. Shows, too, of the circus were to be exhibited in honour of the Claudian and Domitian families at Antium, like those at Bolivay in commemoration of the July. Transient distinctions, all of them, as within four months the infant died. Again there was an outburst of flattery, men voting the honours of deification, of a shrine, a temple, and a priest. The emperor, too, was as excessive in his grief as he had been in his joy. It was observed that when all the senate rushed out to Antium to honour the recent birth, Thracia was forbidden to go, and received with fearless spirit an affront which foreboded his doom. Then followed, as rumour says, an expression from the emperor, in which he boasted to Seneca of his reconciliation with Thracia, on which Seneca congratulated him. And now, henceforth, the glory and the peril of those illustrious men grew together. Meanwhile, in the beginning of spring, Parthian envoys brought a message from King Volgeses, with a letter to the same effect. He did not, it was said, repeat his former and frequent claims to the holding of Armenia, since the gods who ruled the destinies of the most powerful nations had handed over its possessions to the Parthians, not without disgrace to Rome. Only lately he had besieged Tigranes. Afterwards he let Paetus and his legions depart in safety, when he could have destroyed them. He had tried force with a satisfactory result. He had also given clemency a trial. Nor would Tiradides refuse a journey to Rome to receive the crown, were he not detained at home by the duties of a sacred office. He was ready to go to the emperor's image in the Roman headquarters, and there, in the presence of the legions, inaugurate his reign. As Paetus' dispatch contradicted this letter from Jolgesis, and implied that matters were unchanged, the centurion who had arrived with the envoys was questioned as to the state of Armenia. He replied that all the Romans had quitted it. Then was perceived the mockery of the barbarians in petitioning for what they had wrested from us, and Nero consulted with the chief men of the state whether they should accept a dangerous war or a disgraceful peace. There was no hesitation about war. Corbulo, who had known our soldiers and the enemy for so many years, was appointed to conduct it, that there might be no more blunders through any other officer's incapacity, for people were utterly disgusted with Paetus. So the envoys were sent back without an answer, but with some presence, in order to inspire a hope that Tiradates would not make the same request in vain, if he only presented his petition in person. The administration of Syria was entrusted to Caius Itius, and the military forces to Corbulo, to which was added the fifteenth legion, under the leadership of Marius Celsus, from Pannonia. 
Written orders were sent to the tetrarchs, the tributaries, kings, prefects, and procurators, and all the praetors who governed the neighboring provinces, to obey Corbulo's commands, as his powers were enlarged on much the same scale as that which the Roman people had granted to Cnaeus Pompeius on the eve of his war against the pirates. When Paetus returned and dreaded something worse, the emperor thought it enough to reproach him with a jest, to the effect that he pardoned him at once, lest one so ready to take fright might sink under prolonged suspense. Corbulo, meantime, transferred to Syria the fourth and the twelfth legions, which, from the loss of their bravest men and the panic of the remainder, seemed quite unfit for battle, and led thence into Armenia the third and sixth legions, troops in thorough efficiency, and trained by frequent and successive service. And he added to his army the fifth legion, which, having been quartered in Pontus, had known nothing of disaster, with men of the fifteenth, lately brought up, and picked veterans from Illyricum and Egypt, and all the allied cavalry and infantry, and the auxiliaries of the tributary princes, which had been concentrated at Melitene, where he was preparing to cross the Euphrates. Then, after the due lustration of his army, he called them together for an harangue, and began with grand allusions to the imperial auspices, and to his own achievements, while he attributed their disasters to the incapacity of Paetus. He spoke with much impressiveness, which in him, as a military man, was as good as eloquence. He then pursued the route opened up in former days by Lucius Lucullus, clearing away the obstructions of long years. Envoys who came to him from Tiradites and Vologeses about peace, he did not repulse, but sent back with them some centurions with a message anything but harsh. Matters, he said, have not yet gone so far as to require the extremity of war. Many successes have fallen to the lot of Rome, some to that of Parthia, as a warning against pride. Therefore it is to the advantage of Tiradites to accept as a gift a kingdom yet unhurt by the ravages of war, and Vologeses would better consult the welfare of the Parthian people by an alliance with Rome than by mutual injuries. I know how much there is of internal discord, and over what untamably fierce tribes he reigns. My emperor, on the other hand, has undisturbed peace all around him, and this is his only war. In an instant Corbulo backed up his advice by a menacing attitude. He drove from their possessions the nobles of Armenia, who had been the first to revolt from us, destroyed their fortresses, and spread equal panic throughout the plain and the hill country, among the strong and among the weak. Against the name of Corbulo no rage, nothing of the hatred of an enemy was felt by the barbarians, and they therefore thought his advice trustworthy. Consequently, Vologeses was not implacable to the uttermost, and he even asked for a truce for some divisions of his kingdom. Tiradates demanded a place and a day for an interview. The time was to be soon, the place that in which Paetus and his legions had been lately besieged, for this was chosen by the barbarians in remembrance for their most prosperous fortune. Corbulo did not refuse, resolved that a widely different issue should enhance his renown. Nor did the disgrace of Paetus trouble him, as was clearly proved by the fact that he commanded Paetus' son, who was a tribune, to take some companies with him and cover up the relics of that ill-starred battlefield. On the day appointed, Tiberius Alexander, a distinguished Roman knight, sent to assist in the campaign, and Vinianus Aeneas, Corbulo's son-in-law, who, though not yet of a senator's age, had the command of the fifth legion as legatus, entered the camp of Tiradates, by way of compliment to him, and to reassure him against treachery by so valuable a pledge. Each then took with him twenty horsemen. The king, seeing Corbulo, was the first to dismount, and Corbulo hesitated not a moment, but both on foot joined their right hands. 
Then the Roman commended the young prince for abandoning rash courses, and adopting a safe and expedient policy. Tiradates first dwelt much upon the nobility of his race, but went on to speak in a tone of moderation. He would go to Rome, and bring the emperor a new glory, a suppliant Arsacid, while Parthia was prosperous. It was then agreed that Tiradates should lay down his royal crown before Caesar's image, and resume it only from the hand of Nero. The interview then ended with a kiss. After an interval of a few days there was a grand display on both sides. On the one, cavalry ranged in squadrons with their national ensigns. On the other stood the columns of our legions with glittering eagles and standards and images of deities, after the appearance of a temple. In the midst, on a tribunal, was a chair of state, and on the chair a statue of Nero. To this Tiradates advanced, and having slain the customary victims, he removed the crown from his head, and set it at the foot of the statue, whereupon all felt a deep thrill of emotion, rendered the more intense by the sight which yet lingered before their eyes, of the slaughter or siege of Roman armies. But now, they thought, the calamity is reversed. Tiradates is about to go, a spectacle to the world, little better than a prisoner. To military glory Corbulo added courtesy and hospitality. When the king continually asked the reason of whatever he noticed, which was new to him, the announcements, for example, by a centurion of the beginnings of each watch, the dismissal of the guests by the sound of the trumpet, and the lighting by a torch from beneath of an altar in front of the headquarters, Corbulo, by exaggerating everything, filled him with admiration of our ancient system. Next day Tiradates begged for time which, as he was about to enter on so long a journey, might suffice for a previous visit to his brothers and his mother. Meanwhile he gave up his daughter as a hostage, and prepared a suppliant letter to Nero. He then departed, and found Pecorus in Medea, and Vologeses at Ecbatana, who was by no means unconcerned for his brother. In fact, Vologeses had entreated Corbulo by special messengers, that Tiradates might not have to endure any badge of slavery, or have to deliver up his sword, or be debarred of the honour of embracing the governors of the provinces, or to have to present himself at their doors, and that he might be treated at Rome with as much respect as the consuls. Accustomed, forsooth, to foreign arrogance, he had no knowledge of us, who value the reality of empire and disregard its empty show. That same year the emperor put into possession of the Latin franchises the tribes of the Maritime Alps. To the Roman knights he assigned places in the circus, in front of the seats of the people, for up to that time they used to enter in a promiscuous throng, as the Roscian law extended only to fourteen rows in the theatre. The same year witnessed shows of gladiators as magnificent as those of the past. Many ladies of distinction, however, and senators disgraced themselves by appearing in the amphitheatre. In the year of the consulship of Caius Licinius and Marcus Licinius, a yet keener impulse urged Nero to show himself frequently on the public stage. Hitherto he had sung in private houses or gardens, during the juvenile games, but these he now despised, as being but little frequented, and on too small a scale for so fine a voice. As, however, he did not venture to make a beginning at Rome, he chose Neapolis, because it was a Greek city. From this as his starting-point he might cross into Achaia, and there, winning the well-known and sacred garlands of antiquity, evoke, with increased fame, the enthusiasm of the citizens. Accordingly, a rabble of the townsfolk was brought together, with those whom the excitement of such an event had attracted from the neighbouring towns and colonies, and such as followed in the emperor's train to pay him honour for various objects. All these, with some companies of soldiers, filled the theatre at Neapolis. There an incident occurred, which many thought unlucky, though to the emperor it seemed due to the providence of auspicious deities. 
The people who had been present had quitted the theatre, and the empty building then fell in without harm to any one. Thereupon Nero, in an elaborate ode, thanked the gods, celebrated the good luck which attended the late downfall, and as he was on his way to cross the sea of Hadria, he rested a while at Beneventum, where a crowded gladiatorial show was being exhibited by Vatinius. The man was one of the most conspicuously infamous sights in the imperial court, bred as he had been in a shoemaker's shop, of a deformed person of vulgar wit, originally introduced as a butt. After a time he grew so powerful by accusing all the best men, that in influence, wealth, and ability to injure, he was preeminent even in that bad company. While Nero was frequently visiting the show, even amid his pleasures there was no cessation to his crimes. For during the very same period Torquatus Solanus was forced to die, because over and above his illustrious rank as one of the Junian family, he claimed to be the great-grandson of Augustus. Accusers were ordered to charge him with prodigality in lavishing gifts, and with having no hope but in revolution. They said, further, that he had nobles about him for his letters, books, and accounts, titles, all, and reversals of supreme power. Then the most intimate of his freedmen were put in chains and torn from him, till, knowing the doom which impended, Torquatus divided the arteries in his arms. A speech from Nero followed, as usual, which stated that, though he was guilty and with good reason distrusted his defence, he would yet have lived, had he awaited the clemency of the judge. Soon afterwards, giving up Achaia for the present, his reasons were not certainly known, he returned to Rome, there dwelling in his secret imaginations on the provinces of the East, especially Egypt. Then, having declared in public a proclamation that his absence would not be long, and that all things in the state would remain unchanged and prosperous, he visited the temple of the capital for advice about his departure. There he adored the gods, then he entered also the temple of Vesta, and there, feeling a sudden trembling throughout his limbs, either from terror inspired by the deity, or because, from the remembrance of his crimes, he was never free from fear, he relinquished his purpose, repeatedly saying that all his plans were of less account than his love of his country. He had seen the sad countenances of the citizens, he heard their secret complainings at the prospect of his entering on so long a journey, when they could not bear so much as his brief excursions, accustomed as they were to cheer themselves under mischances by the side of the emperor. Hence, as in private relationships the closest ties were the strongest, so the people of Rome had the most powerful claims, and must be obeyed in their wish to retain him. These, and the like sentiments, suited the people, who craved amusement, and feared, always their chief anxiety, scarcity of corn, should he be absent. The senate and leading citizens were in doubt whether to regard him as more terrible at a distance or among them. After a while, as is the way with great terrors, they thought what happened the worst alternative. Nero, to win credit for himself of enjoying nothing so much as the capital, prepared banquets in the public places, and used the whole city, so to say, as his private house. Of these entertainments the most famous for their notorious profligacy were those furnished by Chigenellus, which I will describe as an illustration, that I may not have again and again to narrate similar extravagance. He had a raft constructed on Agrippa's lake, put the guests on board and set it in motion, by other vessels towing it. These vessels glittered with gold and ivory, the crews were arranged according to age and experience in vice. Birds and beasts had been procured from remote countries, and sea-monsters from the ocean. On the margin of the lakes were set up brothels crowded with noble ladies, and on the opposite bank were seen naked prostitutes with obscene gestures and movements. 
As darkness approached, all the adjacent grove and surrounding buildings resounded with song, and shone brilliantly with lights. Nero, who polluted himself by every lawful or lawless indulgence, had not omitted a single abomination which could heighten his depravity, till a few days afterwards he stooped to marry himself to one of that filthy herd, by name Pythagoras, with all the forms of regular wedlock. The bridal veil was put over the emperor, people saw the witnesses of the ceremony, the wedding-dower, the couch, and the nuptial torches, everything in a word was plainly visible, which, even when a woman weds, darkness hides. End of Book 15, Part 2